This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, Law School Show listeners. I hope you're having a good summer. It's David again. In this episode, I chat with Nathan Fox, the founder of Fox LSAT, an LSAT tutoring company. Our conversation covered his law school experience and his decision to not practice law, his LSAT experience, and some pretty good LSAT tips. Nathan achieved a score of 179 on the LSAT, so I would highly recommend his advice to those listeners who are preparing for the test. Nathan also has a podcast that is dedicated solely for LSAT tips. You can find a link to the podcast and his contact information on our website. Nathan also talks about his decision to not practice law after graduation and his tips for students who are unsure about the law as a career. In this time where law tuition is soaring, yet career prospects for law grads is stagnant, it is becoming ever more important to make sure that the legal field is for you. I hope you enjoy this episode. Tell me about yourself without talking about the LSATs. Uh, sure. I'm a teacher. I uh, didn't discover that until relatively late in life. Uh, I tried a million things before I found uh, teaching. And so I've been a stockbroker, a journalist, uh, a product manager, a project manager, and I went to law school. And I tried a million things and, uh, yeah, just found uh, LSAT teaching at about age, boy, I was probably 33 and um, just totally fell in love with uh, the classroom and with the one-on-one experience. Um, teaching is just where it's at for me. So that's that's kind of what I'm about. I mean, personally, I uh, what do I do? I play a little bit of golf here and there. I like video games, movies. I'm a swimmer. Um, and I ride a motorcycle. Uh, I don't know. Anything else you want to know? I think that's a pretty good uh, summary of who you are. And so for our listeners, how did your law school experience guide you in making the decision to teach the LSATs? Well, I was teaching LSAT before I started law school. Um, I had been a GMAT teacher. That's the business school exam. Right. And I uh, was asked to prepare for the LSAT so that I could teach the LSAT. It was actually my employer where I was working part-time teaching GMAT. They needed an LSAT teacher. So that's how I got into LSAT in the first place. I didn't really want to go to law school. I prepared for the LSAT so that I could teach LSAT, and I loved it, and I did really well on the test. Um, Then I had this big LSAT score, so it was like easy for me to get into law school. Right. So I went to law school, but I really foolishly... I should not have ever been in law school. It was a big mistake for me to go to law school. Um, And I stuck it out, but I knew, I guess with a year left, because I started my business between my first and second year of law school. Okay. And um, that's when I started Fox LSAT and started teaching my own classes. And it just took off right away. I got really good reviews and my classes were getting full and I just kept enjoying it. I never thought that I would spend my life as an LSAT teacher <laughs> uh, until I started doing it. And just it, it hasn't ever grown boring for me. It, it never feels like work. So I found more and more success with the business as I was doing my second year of law school. 
And by the time 3L rolled around, I knew that I was never going to take the bar and that I had found my, uh, you know, had found a career that was going to work. So you started as a GMAT instructor at another company. And so what drew you into entrepreneurialism? I kind of grew up as an entrepreneur. I mean, um, you're probably too young, David, to remember the TV show Family Ties <laughs> with uh, Michael J. Fox playing Alex P. Keaton, who was like a young, kind of young Republican. He was super conservative. He always wore ties. He um, was uh, always talking about investing money and, and that sort of thing. Okay. I never wore the suits, but I was, I was sort of like a little young Republican when I was a child. I see. And um, I had like a small savings account. My dad bought me in the savings account. We, we used that money to buy like 10 shares of AT&T common stock. You know, it was only like a $300 <laughs> investment or something like that. But yeah. um, it was all my birthday money and Christmas money and stuff that I had saved up over the years. And we bought some shares of common stock. And then I remember following the shares in the, in the newspaper, you know, following the stock price and just kind of reading about it and learning about it. Then I studied business when I went to college at UC Davis. I studied business and always had kind of entrepreneurial ideas. Then I went and did an MBA at Babson College. And Babson College, I don't know if you know, is a super entrepreneurial school. Okay. Just really focused on entrepreneurship. And so I didn't start a business while I was at Babson, but I just got used to the idea that any idiot can start a business. So why not me sort of thing? <laughs> and um, it really does uh, suit me, the life of an entrepreneur. I love being able to call my own shots, make my own schedule, uh, just kind of be, you know, the last word on everything. And, right. Um, that's a double-edged sword because, you know, I, I also have to be responsible for everything ultimately. Right. But um, so it wouldn't suit everyone, but it really does suit me the life of an entrepreneur <clears throat> for many especially for many incoming law students it is a very daunting challenge to have a good time management in law school many of us students we struggled with just the law school material itself but you yourself during law school started a business so how did you manage your time well <laughs> I, I mean what i basically did was i just half-assed law school. I mean, I just didn't hardly do law school. I I passed all my classes, but I barely attended. I even asked one of my professors for a waiver from her mandatory attendance policy because I wasn't getting anything out of the classes. So I actually even emailed her. Wow. I can't believe to this day. I can't believe I did that. It's yeah. kind of a um, you know, it's I kind of regret it. It's like a sort of a jerk thing to right. do because it's insulting, yeah. but. I was busy. I was starting my business. I really did not get anything out of the law school discussions. I just didn't care. And so I asked her for a waiver uh, for the from the attendance policy, and she gave it to me. And I was able to do very little work, get outlines from other people, take those outlines into the exams, mm -hmm. and I can pass them. You know, I'm I'm really, really good at tests. Okay. And that's like, my, that's like the thing that I'm good at in the right. world is I'm right. good at taking tests. So for me to, to I, I basically breezed through law school with mediocre to, to poor grades. It, I don't think it's that hard either. Um, 
law schools don't want to fail you. Yes. You know, um, I don't know if it's like that in Canada. But it is in the, the United same. States, yeah. Okay. In, in the United States, you know, they want your tuition. And so you, if you want to get B minuses, you can get B minuses all day with very little effort. You're, they're not going to kick you out of school here. Not when you're paying them $50,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. Um, it was foolish. <laughs> There's no point in being in law school if you're not going to be trying your best. And, you know, if you're not going to excel, there's no point. Um, I think I should have dropped out, but that's easy to say in hindsight. Right. And in the moment, I didn't know that I was going to be an LSAT teacher for the rest of my life. I didn't know that my business was going to be as successful as it has turned out to be. I didn't know that I was going to, you know, not get bored with, with teaching. Um, it was all new to me. And so I think I made, I tried to make the conservative decision of staying in law school. I thought it was conservative at the time where, you know, well, if, if need be, I will have this JD on my resume. And if need be, I can always go back and be a lawyer. I don't think I'm going to take the bar now, but I could take the bar somewhere in the future if I decided that I really wanted to practice law. Um, in retrospect, I think that was silly because I just did not want to do what lawyers do. Hmm. So I think it turns out in retrospect to be a really bad investment. Like, for example, you know, people are like, but that JD's on your resume for the rest of your life. Right. And my response is, I know, but I do not have a resume. I have not had a resume since I graduated from law school. I mean, the last resume I printed out was the one I used in my law school application. I see. I see. Um, and so, <laughs> unfortunately, law school really did nothing to help me build my business. Um, I don't feel like I learned a single thing about law that actually helps me as an entrepreneur. Mm. I, I honestly believe that I did not learn mm-hmm. anything that makes me better in business. Um, if I had to say I learned one thing, the thing that I learned is basically avoid litigation at all costs. <laughs> yeah. And um, to that end, I love doing business without a contract. I do not make my students sign anything when they take my class. Mm-hmm. Uh, I accept their payment and I deliver a class that I feel proud of. And if you know, if, if someone's unhappy, I do the very best I can to try to make it right with them because it's the right thing to do. But I have no intention of ever, you know, litigating with people right. and forcing people to, to hold, uphold their end of contracts. And it's just, it, it's the last, last thing on my mind. Right. And so, so uh, yeah. just a quick follow up then, if for some students who are in law school right now, who are in the middle of law school per se, and they're really seriously considering maybe thinking that lo- being a lawyer is not what they want to do. Like, how would drop you out. drop out? Drop out. Okay. If you're not excelling in law school, if you're not sure this is the thing for you, I think there are very good chances that this is not the thing for you. It, it is, you're not going to miraculously like your 3L year when you did not like your 1L and 2L years. Right. You know, and, and I think people should actually make that decision even sooner. Um, I think people should, should, first of all, they should not go to law school and put themselves in this situation if they're not sure what kind of, you know, they, they need to have, they need to know lawyers and they need to know what lawyers do and they need to actually want to do what those real world lawyers are actually doing. Yeah. Like, can you name somebody whose life you would like to have? And not like the TV shows. 
No, and not, you know, Barack Obama. He's a lawyer, but you're not going to be Barack Obama. So let's talk a little more practically here. Yeah. What real world lawyer in your town or some city you would like to move to, what lawyer do you know where you know what their life's like? You know how much they work. You know what kind of work they do. You know whether they're satisfied with that work. You think you would be satisfied with that same work, same amount of money, same place, and you can credibly get there via whatever law school you're thinking about going to. I mean, I would think that's a necessary condition for a sensible plan about going to law school. I mean, of course, if your family is independently wealthy and you have a, you know, a trust fund, uh, college, uh, a scholarship fund where that money is earmarked for law school and you have to spend it for law school, by all means, I, you know, that's not the people that I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to the people who are going to be going um, into potentially life-changing debt for, for their JD um, before you incur that $150,000, $200,000 in debt, I think you really should be able to have a, a sensible plan of what you're going to do with it when you graduate. Um, so that would save people so much stress and drama and angst if they just made better decisions before starting law school in the first place. But speaking as someone who made a bad decision to go to law school, who did not know what I was going to do uh, when I graduated, I would tell people that... If you don't like your 1L year, if you're not excelling in your 1L year and you're starting to think this might not be the right path, I would absolutely drop out. Um, Ask them if you can defer for a year maybe. Um, But rather than just continuing to throw good money after bad, I think you should cut your losses. You know, there's the sunk cost fallacy, which everyone is subject to. But for mm-hmm. me, it was like, well, I've already spent $50,000 in a year of my life, so I may as well spend another $100,000 in two years of my life? Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, it's embarrassing as someone who studied economics. It's embarrassing that that's kind of the analysis that I, that I did, but I suppose that's human nature. So I guess I would just tell people, I think generally, I give young people this advice all the time, to just quit. If it doesn't seem like it's the right thing for you, why not quit? There's an infinite range of possible things you could be doing with your life. And you should get up every day and work on something that you think is the thing for you. And when you start to suspect that it's not, it's probably not. So why not just move on to another to another thing? That's a good point. Let's let's let's, let's change tracks a little. Sure. So you have a business. You have Fox outside. How does it work? Um, Well, let's see. It's uh, just me and a bunch of freelancers. Um, I've kind of always just had friends and friends of friends doing projects for me. I had a friend uh, of a friend design my logo 10 years ago for like $50, and it's the logo that I still use. I had a friend set up my website. Um, That website has now evolved into a much uh, bigger platform. I have freelancers who do the web part. I have a freelancer who uh, beautifully edits my uh, podcast, which is the Thinking LSAT podcast. If people want to get some LSAT talk and law school admissions talk. Um, So I have helpers with that. But on the day to day, uh, 
running my class, it, oh, I have a teaching assistant who helps uh, administer some of the practice tests in my San Francisco class. Okay. But otherwise, it's just me. I teach the classes in San Francisco once every three weekends or so. And I teach a regular um, weeknight class in downtown Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I also do one-on-one private tutoring via Skype mostly. And I have an online program, which is uh, on-demand, a bunch of video that people can watch. It's uh, me in the classroom uh, videos of the same lessons as what I teach in the classroom class. But it's it's ultimately all me. Um, my phone number, my cell phone number is printed on my website and in all of my books. I made that decision when I started the business 10 years ago and I still haven't changed. Um, I haven't changed that. So my, <laughs> my phone number is just <laughs> plastered everywhere on the internet um, and in my books and my email address as well. And I handle all the customer service myself. I think that might be the biggest differentiator actually between me and other prep companies is that as the business owner, I am very interested in the happiness and success of my customers. So when someone calls me and leaves me a message saying, Hey, you know, I, I'm looking for help with the LSAT. Um, very frequently I call them back two minutes later Wow! and reply instantly to emails and call people back instantly just saying, hi, I, you know, this is the thing that I do. I would love to help you. Thank you so much for reaching out. And it's a, it's a small thing, but it blows people's minds because people are used to, um, big corporate, slow moving, you know, customer service representatives. Right. And instead of that, they're getting the owner and teacher of all of the classes and author of six LSAT books calling them back immediately, you know, like, how can I help? <laughs> um, that's, the, that's the big, I think that's really, it's, it's funny because it's just that small little thing at the very beginning of my interaction with my students. But then from there, I think they feel like they know I'm really there to help them. Um, and so then we just end up with a very positive relationship right from the start. It sounds like a very powerful um, tool that prospective law students can use um, at least I know personally, I wish I had something when I was applying to law school that I know of that would have helped me with my LSAT. So let's delve into the LSAT some more. Tell uh, our listeners about your LSAT experience. How did you prepare? Um, I had already taken the GRE and I had already taken the GMAT. So I was very strong in the verbal sections of those tests and a lot of that ability carries over onto the LSAT. The LSAT is a pretty intensive uh, test of your English language abilities and mine are are strong. So the LSAT reading comprehension was automatically basically perfect for me. Um, You know, out of the box, first time I ever did an LSAT reading comprehension section, I think I scored perfect or like maybe missed one or two or something, but it was, it was, I've essentially always scored perfect to near perfect on that section. The LSAT logical reasoning is half of the test and it's a little trickier if you don't know exactly what they mean by the different questions that they're asking you. 
then you can struggle a little bit because you just don't know how to play that game. Mm -hmm. So that I had to practice a bit. I read a bit of theory about it, but I mostly just did practice sections, Um, you know, put 35 minutes on the clock and do a section of a real uh, LSAT test. Right. And then review your mistakes, which, by the way, is how to prepare for the LSAT in (laughs) my mind. Um, That's essentially what people need to do every day. You should put 35 minutes on the clock, do a section of a real LSAT test, and then review your mistakes. That's uh, simple, but extremely effective as an everyday habit. So I did that with the logical reasoning, and I, I, I got almost perfect uh, pretty quickly on logical reasoning as well. The section of the test where I really struggled was games, um, which is extremely common. Games on the LSAT are these funny logic puzzles that people aren't used to. And, you know, any game that you pick up for the very first time, I don't care if it's Mario Kart or, um, you know, any other uh, video game or board game or whatever, you just don't know what you're doing the first time you you pick it up. And so then people get intimidated and they just crash and burn on that section. I didn't crash and burn on that section, but I also was not able to finish that section in time. And sometimes I was only able to get like halfway through the section in time. And so I had this big glaring weakness in logic games. Um, I have since learned that if you have a big glaring weakness in logic games relative to your other sections, you are one of the best candidates for improvement because the logic games is the easiest section on which to improve. Yeah, that's totally true. Um, So I drilled games every day, probably for, I would guess maybe it was three or four weeks probably that I studied. Um, the games didn't really click for me until the final week before I sat for my test, which was in February of 2007. And, but when it, it clicked like four or five days before the test, I, I managed to score perfectly on one section of games. And then the next day I did it again. And then I did it again. And on my test, I scored perfectly on logic games uh, for sure. I knew I had scored perfectly, and I finished, like, way early even. I just crushed the games on my actual official LSAT. So I say that not to brag. I really just say that because I want to encourage people to keep grinding away at the logic games. Um, Don't give up. When you might not make any improvement for two weeks or three weeks or a month or, or six weeks, you might not make any improvement at all on the games. But then overnight, you can pick up six points Hmm. on that section. Um, So it's the practice and the repetition, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I see. That's all all these are about? Oh, I get it. (laughs) And then you get that big boost. Um, And so that's, yeah, that's what happened for me. How was your test experience? Was it uh, pretty smooth sailing? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean... The test experience for me, you know, I've always been really, really good at, at, at standardized tests. I've always been really good at multiple choice tests. Right. So for me, it's like Christmas. You know, I, I, I enjoy the challenge of it. Um, I'm, a, I'm cocky about it. I walk in there and I just kind of observe what's happening around. And I notice that everyone else is less prepared than me. I can tell that everyone else is more nervous than I am. Um, I sort of feed off of that, you know, not, it's not like I'm being a jerk about it to other people or, you know, trying to make anyone feel bad, but 
when I get in that environment, I just know that I'm in my wheelhouse. And so it's almost like nothing can go wrong on a test day for me because I'm just good enough at the test. For example, where I took the test um, at USF, they, the room that they used back when I took it in 2007 was it had those, you know, those college lecture desks that, that are just the little fold yeah. up thing. It folds they're, up and then right. it folds over. Yeah. And those are very small and you can't really fit. Yeah. yeah okay. And they're very, they're small and they're slanted and people complain about them. Well, that's what I had when I took my test and I could see that it was making other people uncomfortable, but when you're good enough at the substance of the test, something like that matters not. Mm-hmm. So it was, and again, it's almost one of those things where I get a little bit of a moral boost from that because I know that it's making other people uncomfortable, but I know that it's not going to make me uncomfortable because I'm just going to sit there and answer the questions correctly. Right, right. And and so other people can worry. You know, I've had people email me after their LSAT like, oh, you know, it was so unfair. I just got so thrown off by these little tiny desks. And then I think back, I, I just think, you know, actually, if you were better prepared, if you really understood the test, I think you would just be calmly answering the questions instead of um, panicking and blaming your poor performance on the external uh, circumstances. Okay. So for students who are beginning their LSAT study prep, how would you tell them to start their prep? I would love it if they would do a full-timed practice test. People are super resistant to do this because they think that they need to read some theory first or they need to prepare for their first test. But if you're not doing timed tests, you're not even really doing the LSAT. So I would just jump in with both feet and do a practice test. Uh, I don't care if you do all four sections of the test back to back to back to back, but I do care that you put 35 minutes on the clock and that you strictly limit yourself to 35 minutes for section one. Um, You can do that section today and you can do section two tomorrow and you can do section three the day after that. I don't care how you break it up, but I think you should do all four sections timed and then score it and just see where you're at. The point isn't to diagnose your entire future history. You know, it's not like, oh, no, I scored a 135 on my first practice test. I'm never going to be a lawyer. That's bogus because people can improve their LSAT scores dramatically with the right kind of prep. Um, But I I do think it's um, it gives you a starting point. You know, you don't know what you don't know until you take a test and make a whole bunch of mistakes. Right. So. If you're working with me, if you're in one of my classes, if you're a private tutoring student, if you take my online class, that's the first thing we're going to do. You're, you're going to do a test, and then we're going to talk about how you did on that test and where we go from here. So before potential law school candidates do anything else, I would absolutely get your hands on – it has to be a real LSAT test. There's one that's freely available on Google – um, legally, you know, mm-hmm. you can probably find all of them if you're willing to pirate uh, the licensed LSAT questions. But you can, there's one that the LSAC gives away for free. And so the magic term is just June 2007 LSAT. If you Google June 2007 LSAT, that test will pop up immediately. You can print it out. And then, yeah, 35 minutes per section, you know, do your best. 
and then figure out what mistakes you made and then make a plan for, for fixing those mistakes. For a student who is preparing to take the LSATs, and this is very, I think this is very particular for Canada because um, students who go through the university system in Canada don't typically take a standardized test. We don't have an SAT for university administration, uh, sorry, university admissions. And so um, for people taking the LSAT, it, the LSAT represents a major obstacle to some, to their plans and they could become very mentally intimidated by this challenge. So how do you prepare students mentally for taking the LSATs? Well, I have a couple things to say about that, actually. So first of all, I don't think not doing the SAT is a disadvantage. Um, the SAT is different from the LSAT in a lot of different ways. Uh, for one thing, it has math on it, which the LSAT does mm-hmm. not. Um, the SAT also has a penalty for guessing, or at least it did when I took the test. So the SAT, strategies for the SAT, I think, involve time management and making sure that you look at every question because some of the questions you're not going to attempt, other questions you're going to attempt and actually answer, but you're not going to randomly guess because there's a penalty for guessing. Right. Uh, okay. You know, whatever it is, minus one third of a point, right? Um, or at least that's how it was when I took the test, which was a long time ago, so right. it could have changed by now. But anyway, that's how it used to be. The LSAT is simply, did you bubble in the right answer or not? If you did, you get a point. If you did not, you get zero points. So on the LSAT, the appropriate strategy is absolutely to bubble in a bubble for every single question. And the later questions in the section are dramatically harder than the earlier questions in the section. So the appropriate strategy for the LSAT is quite different from the time management strategy that you would want on the SAT. On the SAT, I would want to make sure that I give some attention to every single question so that I can decide which ones I want to answer. Mm-hmm. On the LSAT, I would prefer to just do the questions early in the section, calmly, carefully, making sure that I get them right. Because the harder ones at the end of the section, I can just, if I run out of time, I can just randomly guess on all of those. Okay. Um, so anyway, I because of that difference between the SAT and the LSAT, I think, Canadian students should definitely not feel like they're at a disadvantage that they didn't take the SAT. Um, the other thing that I would say is that the LSAT, we're, we're blessed with 78 now uh, practice exams. And you have to pay for them, again, or pirate them. I can't condone that, but you have to pay for them or pirate them. And you'll have access to this mountain of practice tests. And those practice tests are super predictive of what you're likely to find on your actual exam. So this test is very uh, subject to practicing and preparation. Not only that, but the results that you get on your practice tests are going to give you a very clear picture of what sort of score you should expect on your actual day. So if you're feeling anxious, um, you have to remember that this is a test in, a, in large part, it's a test of how hard you can work. They intentionally put these practice tests out there so that you can prepare. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. you do enough of the practice tests, um, 10 full tests at a minimum, bare minimum, 10 full practice tests, 
many students will benefit from doing 20 or 30 or more practice tests. So we're talking about three months, you know, or six months even of prep. Right. But if you do that work, ideally, by the time you roll into your official LSAT exam, it will feel like just another practice test. And you will be happy with what you're scoring on your practice tests because you have improved and you have learned and you're getting better and better at this test. And now you know what kind of scores you get on these exams, which by the way, these exams, these practice tests are the real exams. The most recent one that's out right now is the June 2016 LSAT. That's prep test 78. And I use the June 2016 LSAT in my classes that I'm teaching right now. My students who are going to take the test September 24th, Mm. they will have done the June 2016 exam before they sit for the September 2016 exam. So, you know, and, and they'll know what they scored on that exam. Right. And if they're not happy with what they scored on that exam, then they shouldn't take the test on September 24th because they're not ready yet. Right. Your practice test scores will indicate your level of, of ability or your, eventually they will rise and they will level off at some level of scoring. Everybody levels off at a different spot. You know, it's not like everybody's going to just score 180 if they keep practicing forever. There is a limit. Um, Everybody's limit is different, but eventually if you do 20 practice tests, your, your scores will level off, say, you know, 165 is your average of your practice tests. And then when you go sit for the real thing, you should just go in planning to score around a 165 because that's what you've been doing on all of your practice tests. That's a great tip. Um, in our last remaining minutes, I want to um, have our listeners be able to enjoy some of your expertise in the specific sections of the LSAT. So if you could give one tip for each section of the exam in one sentence, what would it be? I don't know if I can do the one sentence thing. I'll do my best. Um, Reading comprehension, students need to realize that they are being tested on their comprehension of what they read. I know that sounds obvious, but that manifests itself in the questions being highly concentrated in the must be true question type. So if you practice on logical reasoning, if you practice the must be true question type and you, and you really understand that they're looking for an evidence based answer, uh, something that is solely rooted in the facts that you were given. If you treat reading comprehension questions as if they are must be true questions, you will find that you get a lot more of those reading comprehension questions, right? Mm. For logical reasoning, If I had to give one tip, it would simply be to put a chip on your shoulder and argue with the speaker as much as possible because it doesn't matter what question they ask you. You always have to know what the facts said and, you know, what was the conclusion, what was the evidence and what was wrong with that. The right. same argument, the same flawed or incomplete argument can can support any different type of LSAT question. And if you correctly attacked the argument, if you understood what was in the argument, then they can ask you any question they want. You already know the answer because the answer is nine times out of ten going to be related to whatever that hole was 
that you identified in the argument. So spend more time with the argument, less time with the answer choices, attack the argument, and you know, you should you should be predicting the answers before you even look at the answer mm. choices. For logic games, I think people need to focus on perfection. They need to understand that there is an objectively correct answer and four objectively wrong answers on the logic games. There is no, um, you know, oh, these are both good answers, but I'm going to pick the best one. Right. On the logic games, there simply is one answer, and you are smart enough to find that answer if you force yourself to do so. So instead of spreading your attention too thin and biting off more than you can chew and trying to do four games in 35 minutes, I would encourage you to instead have a plan of, I am going to get game one perfect, no matter how long it takes. I'm going to figure out game number one, and I'm going to score perfectly on game number one. And then, if time allows, I'm going to do the same thing for game number two. And then, if time allows, I'm going to do the same thing for game three and four. But I'm not going to be panicking and giving up on game number one, which is probably the easiest game, so that then I can go panic and give up on game number two and three and four. Instead, I'm going to slow down, focus on accuracy, and just make sure that I'm getting them right. right. Um, if you do that on the logic games, you'll find that the games get dramatically easier because you're actually doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is figuring it out with certainty. <laughs> Once you can figure it out with certainty, then you can figure it out faster and faster with certainty. But you can't put the speed before the certainty. You have to achieve certainty before you move on. I think that those are all very good advice. Was, yeah, yeah. I think that will be very useful. That was for way it. more than one one sentence. But it was it was still pretty short. So I think it, and, and short and sweet <laughs> and. I think it will really give uh, the listeners who are really preparing for the LSATs for September um, some things to chew on. And so in our last few minutes, uh, I would like to ask you, um, you mentioned that you have a very busy <laughs> business. So how do you maintain work-life balance? Um, I don't, I guess I haven't thought about it that much. I, I'm sort of a type B personality, I think. Okay. Um, I've never struggled with working too much. I've got a few hours of productivity in me every single day. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I, I do do, um, I, I, I am, I try to be productive when I'm productive, but I also just make plans to go play golf with my buddies. Um, I also just have friends that I hang out with and I've never had a problem, um, carving out time for for that sort of thing um life does get busy from time to time there's times when i start feeling overwhelmed because i have uh, you know my inbox is just full of emails and i have people calling me and i have a million things scheduled yeah. so there's times of course where it gets hectic but you know i i i don't i have lots of time off in my schedule i pretty much take december off every year um and i also take most of June, like second half of June, first half of July, uh, yeah. every single year I take off. And so that does a lot for wow, maintaining good. work-life balance. That's good. And so my last two questions, so my, la my second to last question is, since you've already been so successful with your business, what career goal are you still striving for? 
Um, I am very interested in growing my online business. The, you know, an online class is perfectly scalable, uh, or not perfectly scalable. It requires some effort on my part to, to facilitate more people in the online program. Mm -hmm. But because the online program is like pre-recorded, you know, it's on demand. Yeah. Um, it, it is much more scalable and I can reach students all around the world through that online program. So I love being in the classroom. And I think I'll always be a classroom LSAT teacher because there's just nothing like it. I mean, it's there's it's a thrill for me, right. honestly, to get up in front of a class. It's just delightful. Um, and I'm so lucky to be able to do it. So I think I'll always do that. But as far as how to grow my business, I think it's going to be more in that um, on-demand video and my books, maybe. I've written six LSAT books now. <laughs> They're wow. all available on Amazon. Um I am kind of a writer, I and so I would I would love to write something else, but right now I just don't have any projects in the works. Not, but I'm sure I'll I will uh, publish again something else. What you said just kind of alluded to my last question, and so I think I'm gonna ask you then. I guess if you weren't an outside instructor, you would be teaching something. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, there's there's no question that. Yeah, if the LSAT uh, went away, you know, um, if, if there were no LSAT and I had to start over, yeah, um, I would be shocked if I did not end up in a classroom somewhere. Um, I love talking about the things that I understand. Right. I love helping students, under, you know, helping them see it the way I see it. That's that's essentially all I do because right. I mean, and I'm lucky with the LSAT because I've found something that just intuitively makes sense for me mm -hmm. because it intuitively makes sense for me. Then my job is just a breeze because all I do is talk about how it makes sense. And I try to help people to see it the way I see it. And I've been pretty successful in, in achieving that. Um, I would love to find something else to teach that I felt that way about. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would just be scouring Craigslist looking for mm. uh, teaching jobs. Well, Nathan, uh, I want to thank you on behalf of the Law School Show for your time. So your tips, have been, I think, are going to be very useful for those listeners who are preparing for the LSAT, either in September or later on in the future. Um, we're going to have all of Nathan's contact information, the links to Nathan's website, and the link to the podcast on our website and in the description of this podcast episode. So thank you, Nathan, for your time today. Thanks, David. It was, uh, it was great talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For those of you who will be taking the LSAT soon, I wish you good luck. And if the result is not what you have expected, just remember that an LSAT score is not necessarily a good representation of how successful you will be at law school. And so if you are certain that law school is for you, then keep trying, persevere, and eventually you will succeed. Good luck. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career advancing advice, right to your earbuds.